Continuing with the love of nature in, in the Suzuki, in the Zen and Japanese culture, and Suzuki's essays, this is the continuation of the last podcast. Uh, in section four, let us note here in passing how oriental thoughts and feelings filtered into the American mind in the 19th century. The Transcendentalist Movement uh, movement began with the poets and philosophers of Concord is still continuing all over America. Hmm. While the commercial and industrial expansion of America in the Far East and all over the world is a significant event of the 20th century, we must acknowledge at the same time that the Orient is contributing its quota to the intellectual wealth of the West, American as well as European. In 1844, Emerson wrote in response to Carlyle's chiding of his otherworldliness in these remarkable terms, quote, You sometimes charge me with I know not what sky-blue, sky-void idealism. As far as it is a partiality, I fear I may be more deeply infected than you think me. I have very joyful dreams which I cannot bring to paper, much less any approach to practice, and I blame myself not at all for my reveries, but they have not yet got possession of my house and barn. I only worship eternal Buddha in the retirements and intermissions of Brahma. Emerson's allusion to the sky-void idealism is interesting. Apparently he means the Buddhist theory of sunyata, emptiness or void, although it is doubtful how deeply he entered into the spirit of this theory, which is the basic principle of the Buddhist thought and form which Zen starts on its mystic appreciation of nature. It is really wonderful to see the American mind as represented by the exponents of transcendentalism. Even trying to probe into the abysmal darkness of the oriental fantasy, I am now beginning to understand the meaning of the deep impressions made upon me while reading Emerson in my college days. <laughs> I was not then studying the American philosopher, but digging down into the recesses of my own thought, which had been there ever since the awakening of Oriental consciousness. That was the reason why I had felt so familiar with him. I was indeed making acquaintance with myself then. The same can be said of Thoreau. Who would not recognize his poetic affinity with Sagio or Basho and his perhaps unconscious indebtedness to the oriental mode, mode of thinking towards nature? To finish this part of my thesis, let me introduce to you a Zen master whose remark on rain is well known among the followers of Zen. It was raining one day in Kyosho, K-Y-O-S-H-O, died 937. The master said to a monk, quote, 
What is the sound outside the door? Unquote. The monk answered, Quote, The pattering of raindrops, master. Unquote. This was an honest answer, and the master knew it from the first. His verdict, however, was, quote, All beings are confused in mind. They are pursuing outside objects always, not knowing where to find the real self. This is a hard hit. If the outside pattering is not to be called rain, what is it? What does it mean to pursue the outside objects and be confused in the notion of the ego? Sekyo, Sekyo comments, S-E-C-C-H-O comments, an empty hall and the sound of pattering rain. Indeed, an unanswerable question even for an accomplished master. The American transcendentalist attitude towards nature has no doubt a great mystical note, but the Zen masters go far beyond it and are really incomprehensible. But we will drop the rain for a while, for it is now time to see into the teaching of Zen. This is like a section 202, but it's still within love of nature. To understand the cultural life of the Japanese people in all its different aspects, including their intensive love of nature, which we have spoken of just now, it is essential, as I have repeated, repeatedly stated, to dwell into the twelve, into the secrets of Zen Buddhism. Without some knowledge of these, the Japanese character is difficult to appreciate. This does not, of course, mean that Zen is the everything in the molding of the character and general culture of the Japanese people. What I mean is that when Zen is grasp, we can, with some degree of ease, get into the depths of their spiritual life and all its varied expressions. This fact is recognized, consciously or unconsciously, by scholars and by men in the street. The former recognize it in an analytic, cold, and critical manner, worthy of the profession. The latter appreciate by actually living it, in the delight they feel in listening to tales and traditions, traceable, however, to the teaching of Zen Buddhism. That Zen has had a great deal to do in the building of Japanese character and culture is pointed out also by foreign writers on Japan, among them whom we may mention the following. The late Sir Charles Eliot, who most unfortunately passed away without personally revising his valuable book, Japanese Buddhism, writes, page 396, quote, Zen has been a great power in the artistic, intellectual, and even the political life of the Far East. To a certain extent, it has molded the Japanese character, but it is also the expression of that character. No other form of Buddhism is so thoroughly Japanese. The one significant point here is that Zen is the expression of the Japanese character. Historically, Zen started in China about 1,500 years ago, and it was not until the latter part of the Sun, Sun, 
S-U-N-G Dynasty, 961 to 1280. That is in the earlier part of the 13th century that Zen was brought to Japan. Thus, the history of Zen in Japan is far younger than in China, but it is was so adaptable to the character of the Japanese people, especially in its moral and aesthetic aspects, that it has penetrated far more deeply and widely into Japanese life than into Chinese. Hence, we see that the statement made by the author of Zen, Japanese Buddhism is not at all an exaggeration. That's the author, Charles Eliot. Sir George Sansom, S-A-N-S-O-M, another capable English writer on Japan, makes the following observation on Zen in Japan in his Japan, A Short Cultural History, page 336. Quote, the influence of the school in other words, Zen Buddhism, upon Japan has been so subtle and pervading that it has become the essence of her finest culture. To follow its ramifications in thought and sentiment, in art, letters, and behavior would be to write exhaustively the most difficult and most fascinating chapter of her spiritual history. Unquote. While I may have occasion later to criticize this writer's view on the Japanese love of nature, the point he makes here is accurate, and I am in full agreement with him. What are the characteristic features of Zen as distinguished from the other forms of Buddhism? Question mark. It will be necessary to know them before we proceed to see the relationship between Zen and the Japanese love of nature. Naturally, it is outside our scope of study here to enter into detail into what really and essentially constitutes Zen. Much has already been done along this line directly and indirectly in the preceding sections. Therefore, let the following statement, brief statements here suffice concerning the teaching and discipline of Zen as regards its four aspects, religious, moral, aesthetic, and epistemological. Guess you gotta learn, figure out Zen. That that's too hard. In the first place, let me state that Zen is not a mere aesthetic discipline. When we see a monk living in a humble hut and sustaining himself on rice and pickles and potatoes, we may imagine him to be a world-fleeing recluse, whose principle of life is self-abnegation. True. There is a certain side in his life tending to this, as Zen teaches a form of detachment and self-control. But if we imagine there is nothing more in Zen, we may entertain a very superficial view of it. The Zen insights go far deeper into the source of life, where Zen is truly religious. By this I mean Zen is in close touch with reality. Indeed, Zen takes hold of it and lives it, and thus is where... This is where Zen is religious. Those who are acquainted only with the Christian or some Indian bhakti forms of religion may wonder where really in Zen is that which corresponds to the notion of God and their pious attitude towards him. Reality sounds to them too conceptual and philosophical and not devotional enough. In fact, 
Buddhism uses quite frequently more abstract-sounding terms than reality, for instance. Suchness or thusness, tathata, emptiness or void, sunyata, limits of reality, bhūtākoti, and this is sometimes what leads Christian critics and even Japanese scholars themselves to regard Zen as a teaching of a quietistic, meditative life. But in the followers of Zen, these terms are not conceptual at all, but quite real and direct, vital and energizing, because reality or suchness or emptiness is taken hold of in the midst of the concrete living facts of the universe and not abstracted from them by means of thought. Zen never leaves this world of facts and always lives in the midst of realities. It is not for Zen to stand apart and keep itself away from my world of names and forms. It is, if there is a God, personal or impersonal, he or it must be in with Zen and in Zen as long as an objective world, whether religiously or philosophically or poetically considered, remains a threatening and annihilating power. Standing between us, there is no Zen here. For Zen makes a humble blade of grass act as the Buddha body sixteen feet high. And conversely, the Buddha body sixteen feet high act as a humble blade of grass. Zen holds the whole universe as it were in its palm. This is the religion of Zen. Zen is often thought to be a form of pantheism. Apparently it is. What? Enough. Enough. <laughs> There's a lot of Zen in here. There's too much Zen. We're going to stop here. There's too much Zen and not enough nature. So we're going to stop here. Mm-hmm. <laughs>